This is What A Week, as always, joined by Andrew Pettiprin. Andrew, how are you? I'm very well, Zach. How are you? Doing well. Also excited to have you on. And we also have our guest. He has answered the call. We we uh, we mentioned him on last week's episode uh, in reference to the long article about the uh, the Chicago ballpark that never was but could have been designed by Philip Bess. Uh, and um, yeah, he answered the call. Bobby, welcome. Thanks for having me, Zach. Absolutely. Uh, it's, uh, you know, it's a, it's a bummer that you have moved away from Chicago to the, the fair pastures of Texas. Uh, but you know, maybe not as much of a bummer as it would have been if you did have that beautiful ballpark to go to. So I know, I think the, the South side, you know, uh, the decline of the South side begins there. So, uh, specifically with the white Sox's decision to not build Philip Bess's ballpark. Is that it? Yeah. Uh, you know, I'm not a big Reinstorf's fan either. So, I mean, maybe it all begins with him, but, um, Fair enough. you know, yeah, I think that, you know, architecture, right. is supposed to lead not only to the beauty of the city, but to the virtuous, the virtuousness of all the souls. So, you know, perhaps right. that ugly, what is it now? Guaranteed rate park, um, guaranteed rate field. They, they tried to call field, it a field, field. which, oh, yeah. gosh, yeah, yeah. Which field field is a field is a or park. They're both um, they're both some sort of throwback to the the uh, baseball parks of yesteryear, uh, which is certainly better than the stadium. You know, guaranteed rate stadium is just awful. It makes it sound like a football field and baseball should not be viewed in the same way through the same commercial lens that football is. But calling a monstrosity that is guaranteed rate field a field does does grave injustice uh, to to um, to architecture, I think so. Yeah, it's it's a complete travesty. Oh yeah, oh yeah. I mean, I, I mean, just the name itself. The name itself is horrible. Guaranteed rate. <laughs> I want to see how. I mean, far it might be fitting these. to the architecture, though. I mean, it. That's fair. I mean, yeah. I don't know yeah. if you want to go down that route, so we can continue. Well, I will say. I mean, how many? How many? Uh, there's Dodger Stadium that is not named after a you know a sponsor. There is um, there is Fenway Park. There is Yankee Stadium. And I'm trying to think of others. Camden Yards. Yeah. What, um, what Wrigley Field. What else am I missing that's that's not named after some sort of sponsor? Well, I mean Bush, but that see it goes all the way back. No, I mean, but, Bush but Bush is, is a beer. Is, yeah. yeah, I know that. that um, but Wrigley was Wrigley originally with the Cubs. I mean, did that have anything to do with Wrigley? Um, yes. The, yes, okay. definitely. So, but I, but I think, I don't know if that, yeah, maybe, maybe Bush is the same. Maybe it doesn't count though, because it's become synonymous with the area. And I, I don't think, yeah. there, I don't think there's an active sponsorship deal for the name Wrigley Field now. I think that just is what it is. I could yeah. be wrong, but. Yeah. I, well, I'm trying to think, I don't even, the Texas Rangers, Andrew, what is the, the name of their, their field? I have no idea. I think it's, is it AT&T? Park or is that is. where Let the football That's team the plays? Cowboys. Oh no, AT&T That's Stadium the is stadium? the Cowboys. Yeah. yeah. Hold on. Texas Rangers. I, I bet you nobody here in DFW even knows, really. I, so, I would be, I mean, yeah. They're not big Rangers fans, at least from what I can tell. It is Choctaw Stadium. No, no, no. That's the old one. No. No, now it's Globe Life Field. <laughs> Globe Life Field. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's pretty close to it, where I go to church most Sundays. So bad. Um, so bad. I should know that. Globe Life Field. Okay. Mm. Well, moving on. Um, yeah. Well, big week this week. Speaking of what a week, uh, we have massive loan forgiveness from the federal government. Do you guys have any hot takes on loan forgiveness? 
Bobby and I were talking about this earlier <laughs> today. I don't I don't have any hot takes. I actually once floated a a take though. I tried to develop it, but I just don't have the economic chops to Fair say enough. that it might be a good idea to uh, forgive women's student debt. Uh, I had a sort of hot take about this, mainly because I was thinking about my wife and her student debt. She, you know, sacrificed so much to like go back to school and get her degree. And then we had a family and she wants to stay home. And she's in a sense, like very much using her degree, but she's not earning any money outside yep. in the workforce. And there was a part of me that thought, you know what? I think I think she deserves to be repaid for that sacrifice yeah. that she made. But I just kind of couldn't mount a good economic argument for it. So that's about the hottest take I uh, I can mount. I know there's a lot of uh, consternation about about the decision. What's your take, Zach? Well, first of all, I, I have not, I've never even thought about that idea of forgiving women's student debt. Uh, I mean, there are a number of reasons why that would, that would face any number of, uh, you know, legal challenges and certainly public outcry if you selectively and chose. what is a woman? I mean, oh, now we've got this added, added yeah. problem that we're <laughs> right. going to have to solve how before do you, we go down that road. How do you identify? Yeah. Uh, and the, yeah, at least one of our Supreme Court justices can't answer that question either, right? So, you know, how would this even be adjudicated in the highest court? We're not biologists, Seth. I mean, <laughs> we're not we biologists. <laughs> uh, that's a really interesting question, though, because I, I do, you know, the, 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 when, you, when you dig, for example, um, even when you scratch an inch deep on even the wage gap, it becomes apparent that the vast majority of the wage gap, although there is a real wage gap that is not attributable to other factors, such as sort of self-selection in career, the vast majority of the wage gap that does exist between uh, the pay of men and the pay of women in the public in the public sphere is primarily due to uh, self-selection. In other words, you know, women choose to leave the workforce voluntarily because they would rather be um, at home with children. That's obviously a, a general statement, not a statement that applies to every woman equally. But that's where a large part of the wage gap comes from. And it makes me wonder how many how many stay in the workforce to any extent because they are paying off, you know, a huge pile of student debt that they have no other means of of paying off. So it's an interesting idea. I like it a lot. And then, you know, conce conceivably, if you cut in virtually half uh, the amount of people who are receiving this assistance, uh, you can give more assistance to the people who are receiving it for the same dollar amount. So that's a really intriguing idea. I think my hot take, I I'm honestly, there are people who I know are just absolutely incensed that, you know, the, the burden of the education dollars is being transferred to the people who um, did not absorb the lending. I think that's partially fair. I'm not particularly outraged by that idea in general. I find that that's the case, you know, anytime there are taxes, like taxes are a form of redistribution. And I don't think categorically that redistribution is always a bad thing. However, to me, the big scandal here is that the people who have perpetrated what I consider to be a decades long scam that we call higher education, by the way, very relevant to our, our close read for today. Indeed. Uh, the people who have perpetrated the scam for decades get off completely scot-free and don't actually have to shoulder the burden. Uh, what will probably end up happening, happening, I think, is that those institutions will be able to charge the same ridiculous, uh, exorbitant amounts of tuition that they have been charging, and perhaps even increase them, simply because current students will now say, oh, the government will bail me out. I can take on tens of thousands of dollars of you know, Pell Grant student debt, and it will be forgiven in the future by some some president, uh, you know, who who decides that he wants to do that or she wants to do that. That I think is the real problem. So it doesn't actually address the real. It, it's it's a symptomatic treatment as opposed to a, um, uh, you know, a, 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 a treatment at the root of the problem. Um, I also think of, for example, the, the the recent Inflation Reduction Act that, of course, is going to do nothing to inflation per the nonpartisan Congressional Budget Office. Uh, one of the things that included was a seven thousand five hundred dollar tax credit for buying electric vehicles. 
And you think, okay, that's good. We can help pe- move people towards green vehicles, et cetera. I'm in favor of green energy. I mean, you know, it has to be smart. I'm not really in favor of wind turbines because they tend to be really inefficient. I'm in favor of nuclear, et cetera, et cetera. But in general, I think, uh, you know, green energy is a good thing to strive for as long as we do it well and do it efficiently. So I think tax credits for electric vehicles can be a good idea. The problem is oftentimes, uh, perhaps even most times, that really just gets passed directly uh, to the, you know, as basically as a form of uh, uh, a form of stimulus to the manufacturer itself. So whenever right. you, whenever you go on Tesla's website, for example, to buy a car, you'll see what you pay in the first year, and it includes the tax the tax credit. Um, and so Tesla is able to sort of sell their cars at a higher markup because they know you get the credit and because they know that you'll see the delta between the sticker price and, and you factor in the, the credit and they even factor it in for you on their website. Well, in the case of uh, Ford, they have this new pickup truck coming out called the Lightning. Uh, the sticker price was uh, something like uh, $70,000, I think. This $7,500 tax credit comes out in the act and then Ford immediately raises the price of the the Ford Lightning by a convenient $8,000. Yeah. Just saying like, oh, it's really complicated to make. You know, we, we had some calculations yeah. wrong. The calculation they had wrong was they calculated the price sensitivity of the U.S. consumer to $70,000. Now that's increased by $7,500. So now the price sensitivity brings it up to Seventy-eight thousand dollars, and that's what they're going to charge for the lightning too. So, that's I mean, that's that's the problem with with uh, with a lot of these types of government intervention um, that sort of just try to slap a bandaid on the solution. It's like that meme where the guy there's a there's a big leak and the guy's just slapping a little bandaid on the giant thing that's about to explode. It's mm-hmm. it's that I think that's that's what we end up doing. It's like a sim- symptomatic thing that's really just kicking the can down the road and, and creating a further problem. But that's that's my hot take. Sorry, I've talked long enough. Zach, how how much does it cost to go to Notre Dame as an undergrad now? Last I checked, it was like 65,000. And I saw a headline this morning. I didn't read the article, but that, yeah, some of these these universities are um, increasing tuition like by $10,000 already. Um, I'm sure they are. Here we go. Average cost of attendance for 2022 to 2023. uh, Notre Dame, tuition and fees, $60,000. But room and meals, $16,000. Books and supplies, $1,250. Personal expenses, $1,200. Transportation, $750. Total cost, $80,211 for one year. Oh my one gosh. One year at you, Notre Dame. You, have you, I know um, Andrew has read some of this guy, but Matthew Crawford, I used to, when I was yep. teaching high school, I used to uh, tell students about his book, Shop Classes Soulcraft, as often yep. as I could. Great one. Just trying yep. to convince them that they did not feel like studying for four years very and some of them were not very studious and they were actually quite good at the crafts i said why why not why not just not even go to college why not find a good really good vocational school my brother-in-law is a plumber and he's making a pretty good life for himself so yeah no the i mean the payment of the trades is really good especially now when it's hard to find people in the trades two points on that i i recently learned about a school in scotland called the Chippendale School of Furniture, I think it is. And they have this nine-month intensive where you go there for nine months full-time and you learn how to make furniture, but they also give you classes in, in marketing and starting your own business so that you leave from there ready to be a, a furniture carpenter and make furniture and run your own business. And I'd be lying to you guys if I said I did not like just consider it. Like, What if I were to do that? I would love to work as a carpenter and make furniture for a living. That'd be amazing. And then you, you, know, you podcast and write books and do things on the side, but that'd be cool. I also found out about this, uh, I forget the name of it, but it's, it's new. For, it's for the, been running for like two, maybe three years. It's in Grand Rapids, and it is a school of the trades. They do, I think, electrical and maybe one other trade. Um, but it's 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 Catholic, and it's designed to integrate prayer and work and community in a way that's never been done before. So it's a residential trade school, and they live almost a you know a quasi monastic life. So they do prayers every every day together. I don't know if it's literally the hours or something similar, but they 
they, they, they build their life around prayer and communal meals and communal living, and they learn trades while they're there. And it's a one or a two year program, depending on, on how you do it. It's, it looks super cool. I'm going to look up the, the name of it. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, I, I was really interested in this as well, Zach, a number of years ago. Um, and I remember reading, I think there's some economist, uh, who said that you can't hammer in a nail over the phone. So a lot of these, you know, um, jobs that were being, you know, like more white collar jobs that were being trained for, I mean, they can just, you know, you know, offshore a lot of that work. Um, and also too, I mean, you know, all the politicking that goes on in the office space can be quite frustrating and you could leave, you know, at the end of the day, not feeling like you accomplished much. Um, whereas, I mean, it seems like my brother-in-law, when he's done with his week of plumbing, um, and welding, he seems quite content without bringing a lot of the frustrations from work home. So totally. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's my case. I don't know about you guys. I mean, you like me, I think sit in front of a computer a lot for your work day, you know, and it's, it's my experience that on a weekend when I have the chance to work with my hands and build something, or even just like pull up weeds in the garden for a couple hours, I, I feel good after that. I feel like I actually did something. I created something where I beautified something in the case of pulling up weeds and I don't really have that same sort of, you know, maybe it's just an endorphin surge or whatever, but I don't, I don't really have that feeling after like a day of sitting at my computer. It's just a, it's just a qualitatively different thing. And I long for that feeling of accomplishment of, you know, of being creative, of, of producing something that, you know, it's, it's just increasingly hard to find as a person who, who works an office job, you know? Yeah, for sure. Uh, should we go into misinformation now, guys? Let's do it. All right. Andrew, I'm going to go first this week, uh, since you went first last week. Um, Bobby, I know you do not have uh, articles. I just told you you'd be a you'd be a guest here, so you just get to be along for the ride, and you get to guess at two different versions of uh, of misinformation to try to identify the false story. So for you, for listeners who are new here, yeah, I'll be like three Andy stories. Richter. Yeah, exactly. Three three stories, uh, and you have to choose uh, which one is real and which one is fake. I'll give you kind of just the the highlights, and then we'll dive into each one as we find out. Uh, what's real and what's fake. Okay. You guys ready? Ready. All right. Item number one, courtesy of The Guardian. Researchers at Michigan State University have made a composite resin for the blades of wind turbines by combining glass fibers with a plant-derived polymer and a synthetic one. Once the blades have reached the end of their lifespan, the materials can be broken down and recycled to make new products, including turbine blades and chewy sweets such as gummy bears. Okay? So, uh, item number one, researchers at Michigan State have made a, have developed a, a wind turbine technology that you can, you know, at the end of the lifespan of the wind turbine, you can turn it into gummy bears. All right, that's story number one. Story number two, not long after announcing that Capitol Records, I don't know if you've heard of Capitol Records, fairly big uh, music label, not long after announcing, this is, by the way, courtesy of NBC News. Not long after announcing that the Capitol Records label had signed a computer-generated rapper dubbed FN Mecca or Mika, Capitol Music Group announced that it is severing ties with the project. Quote from Capitol Records, Capitol Music Group has severed ties with the FN Mecca project effective immediately. We offer our deepest apologies to the black community for our insensitivity in signing this project without asking enough questions about equity and the creative process behind it. A little more background on this, if it's true, 
Uh, there's a an AI rapper called FN Mecca, and by AI rapper, I mean all the music and all of the imagery of the rapper is AI generated. Uh, but can uh, Capitol Records sign this label or sign this artist to the label, despite it being an AI artist? But then, um, then said after outcry that it re- realized that the AI rapper was racist and therefore uh, would not be would be canceling the the deal that it had signed. Okay, that is item number two. Uh, item number three. Uh, this one, courtesy of Twitter. I'm just going to read this tweet that may or may not be real. This tweet is from Podcast Movement, which is, uh, I think, the largest conference for podcasters in the U.S. A little background on this. Jeffrey Tubin. I'm sure you guys know who Jeffrey Tubin is, but uh, Jeffrey Tubin recently left CNN permanently, but uh, he was suspended from CNN a couple years ago because he was caught masturbating on camera during a company Zoom call for The New Yorker. Uh, I think he was let go from The New Yorker, suspended from CNN, and and then came back. So an, an, an unsavory character, uh, at least in that regard. Okay, here's a, here's a tweet, true or false, podcast movement. Hi, folks. We owe you an apology before sessions kick off for the day. Yesterday afternoon, Jeffrey Tubin briefly visited the Podcast Movement 22 Expo area near several of our booths. Though he was not registered or expected, we take full responsibility for the harm done by his presence. All right, that is the third, the third misinformation article. Hmm. What do you think is real? What do you think is false? Bob, you want to have a stab at it first uh, since you're our guest? Okay. Um, I think the first story about the the wind turbines being turned into, what, chewy gummy bears? That's right. Yep. I think that's false. And I think the other two are true. Is this how how the game works? That's it. Yep. That's that's essentially it. Yep. Yeah. (laughs) Um, AI. AI the rapper. I mean... Yeah, I've heard I've heard that AI artificial intelligence is 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 racist. So um, I've uh, I believe that. And then Jeffrey Tubin, man, I I didn't know that about him. Um, okay. Oh really? Yeah, yeah. I, that was I, that was. I, a I don't big follow thing the news like ago. you guys do. I'm I'm, yeah. I'm uh, reading Matthew Crawford and living in a cave. Um, That's a better thing than than finding out about. Jeffrey <laughs> Tubin's various, uh, but I various misjudgments. Okay. Yeah. Okay. All right. So you think the gummy bears one is false? The other two are true. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Andrew. Okay. I'm I'm going to agree with Bobby on this one. I think the gummy bears. I think you gave yourself away. I think it's a little bit too a little bit too specific. I think <laughs> uh, the gu- that I think that one's got to be false. But um, I am very interested in. I'm horrified and uh, by AI. In general, I'm I'm interested in hearing how this AI is racist, and um, I I also find it just really amusing that uh, organizations apologize for the presence of somebody they didn't even want there. That's just kind of yes. a funny thing. But though I suppose sometimes yeah. that kind of thing is warranted. But I'd be interested to hear more about that too. So uh, number one, so is do you false. agree that okay, number one's false? Yeah. Um, well, the answer is number one is true. No. <laughs> Number two is true. Number three is false. Oh, okay. The, the actual quote for number three, we'll, we'll go through each of the three articles, but the actual true tweet for number three was not about Jeffrey Tubin, which like, I think it would be perhaps understandable um, if, uh, perhaps understandable if people were, you know, made to feel unsafe by Jeffrey Tubin's presence, given that he did expose himself to all of his coworkers when he was working at the New Yorker. But <laughs> yeah, actually, it was creep. not about Jeffrey yeah. Tubin. Yeah. 
it was about um Ben Shapiro. So the actual tweet is, hi, oh folks, we gosh. owe you an apology before sessions kick off for the day. Yesterday afternoon, Ben Shapiro briefly visited the PM22 Expo area <laughs> near Daily Wire's booth, though he was not registered or expected. We take full responsibility for the harm done by his presence. So that was the that's the actual story that happened. there. So the Daily Jeffrey Wire had a booth okay. and that was OK. But the the founding right. mem- the founder of the of the organization was not. Like his presence is scandalous. Okay, that's that's that is correct. There's a there's a podcast thread. It, it I mean it certainly could be interpreted that way. Uh, the the actual thread of uh, this from podcast movement goes on to you know basically say like look we take full responsibilities. Essentially saying someone's head is going to roll. A human being approved Daily Wire's presence here today, and you know we never should have had them here, et cetera, et cetera. So quite ridiculous. Okay, uh, so that is the that's the false one. The uh, the true one, the Guardian, uh, is indeed about wind turbine blades, and uh, one of the uh, one of the uh, researchers here says is describing this technology. So they they make this out of a new form of resin, and then when you digest or break down the resin in an alkaline solution, you make potassium lactate, which can be purified and made into sweets and sports drinks. The, mm-hmm. One of the authors of the paper said. Uh, we recovered food grade potassium lactate and used it to make gummy bear candies, which I ate. That can't so be good go. for you. But I don't I, think real gummy bears are very good for you either. Yeah, that's very true. Yeah. What about the organic uh, so, ones, Andrew? From I get the yeah. I ha- I do eat. I get those, and my wife and I eat those at the movie theater. I I do admit that. Nice. But I'd be reluctant to to try these that you're talking about, Zach. I yeah. The 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 recycled wind turbine gummy bears is not my preferred not my preferred brand. Is there going to be a warning um, like? you know, on, on the bag, at least telling people that Good this question. is a, you know, formerly a wind turbine. Yeah. Or maybe it's going to be a, you know, a soil and green type situation. You don't know the provenance of the, of the precursors to the major food, you know, it's a good question, Bobby. Very good. These are, these are the important questions that must be asked. Uh, all right. Final one. So this is also true. The, the AI. Now I have to admit, I I'm coming in fairly cold on this story. I found it and was like, this is too good to pass up. But there is this yeah, AI-generated rapper called FN Mecca. It's, it's capital F, capital N, space, capital M, lowercase E-K-A. And uh, yeah, I'll, I'll uh, drop you guys this link and you can check it out as well. This is going to be in the show notes too. But um, there's an AI-generated image of this rapper and I guess an AI-generated you know personage that can appear in videos. And then all the music is AI-generated. What's, what's human is the actual rapping of the lyrics of the AI generated music. But uh, I was looking at this article a bit and this, this rapper quote rapper has been around for several years and amassed a following of millions had hundreds of millions of views on TikTok and YouTube before Capitol records signed. I'll say it because it's an inanimate AI uh, with over 1 billion views and 10 million followers on TikTok alone. He is the number one virtual being on the platform, according to the, uh, the original Capitol Records press release, uh, you know, two weeks ago. But wow. um, this this group called Industry Blackout, as far I've never heard of them before, but apparently they are a uh, a group, you know, supposedly fighting for racial equity in the music and entertainment industry, and they they called out Capitol Records and said that you know there are tons of tons of problems with appropriation, et cetera, in this AI rapper. And for you to sign him is really racist of you. And you must, you must uh, formally apologize, cancel the contract, et cetera. 
I honestly don't have enough background on this to really understand uh, if their complaint has merit. I just think that that this is ridiculous. I guess that's that's my only that's my only comment on this. That this is what this is what we've come to. We have AI. First of all, who listens to an AI rapper? <laughs> Second of all, right. who cares enough about this to sign him to a contract and or to you know get get all worked up about this? I mean, I, I don't know. The, the the time people have on their hands is really remarkable to me. Well, aren't most yeah, one of the artists today, aren't they all AI? I mean, they seem to be as creative as, as uh, you know, the next computer. Yeah, maybe so. You know, I yeah. thought, Zach, that uh, one, of the, one of the funniest things about that story is just the whole premise of the, the record contract, you know, Capitol Records. I mean, yeah. it sounds like this is like the 80s or something like that, you know. Um, <laughs> yeah. Sounds like this, this AI bot was already doing perfectly well you know, getting its music out to the world, you know? So yeah. it's kind of funny that the old, the old record label thing got introduced into this one. Yeah, it is. Uh, it is definitely interesting. Yeah. You would think that the AI bot would be savvy enough to reach, you know, it's, it's huge uh, audience just via organic platforms and ride its 10 million TikTok followers to success. But I guess not, Andrew, I guess not. It's, it's, it is sad to me that Capitol Records they they saw this as a lucrative enough opportunity. Like the fact that that many people want to listen to an AI rapper is it's it's insane to me. It boggles <laughs> the mind. That to me is the most amazing part of this story. You know, I've I've have you guys heard any AI generated music? No, not that I know of. I can't so wait I'm, to. I'm read a them. musician. Yeah, tell us, tell yeah, us. Well, Zach. yeah, definitely. Well, I'm a musician. I've heard some of this stuff. I can't I can't claim to have you know heard a great deal of it, but. I've, I've clicked on some articles where they say like, you know, you won't believe what this AI composed. And I click it and I'm like, this is a horrific cacophony. Who in the world would ever want to listen to this? And, you know, it doesn't, doesn't hold a candle to, uh, to any of the greats, much less, you know, my, my seven-year-old. So, um, yeah, I, it's, it's rough stuff. We're, we're a long way from, uh, me, from AI composers passing the Turing test. I'll put it that way. Yeah. All right. All right. Part Ready two for... of this information. Let's roll. All right, ready for mine, guys? Ready. Okay, here we go. All right, number one, this is from the Epic Times. Uh, this says, uh, Meta and Twitter remove network of accounts that promoted pro-Western narratives while opposing China, Russia, and Iran. Here's a little more, if true. Facebook and Twitter took down a network of social media accounts that, quote, used deceptive tactics to promote pro-Western narratives that supported the United States and its allies while opposing countries like China, Russia, and Iran, according to a report released on August 24th. The joint investigation by the Stanford Internet Observatory and Graphica, a social media analytics firm, found that an interconnected web of accounts on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and five other social media platforms utilized, quote, deceptive strategies uh, in the promotion of these, quote, Western narratives. So there's okay. the first one. All right. Okay. All right. The second one is from a website called filmfair.com. And it is an exclusive interview with J.D. Payne, who is the showrunner for the new Amazon Prime series, Lord of the Rings, The Rings of Power, um, which is- Which looks set- terrible, by the way. It looks yes, so bad. It does look so bad. bad. And you might, I don't know if you're going to think even less of it after we get through, get through this. But okay. um, yeah, I actually wasn't going to watch it, but I was asked by a publication uh, to review it. So I'm going to end up 
watching it and writing about it. But I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm for, I'll, not I'll, I'll pray for you, Andrew. Yeah. Thank you. I, I think I'll need it. But um, anyway, uh, we'll talk more about that in a second, I suppose. But but uh, so here is a quote, maybe, from J.D. Payne from this exclusive interview. He says, I think we just want to create a Middle Earth for today. Fewer and fewer people read the Lord of the Rings novels these days because they are rooted in racism, sexism, and patriarchy. Peter Jackson's films are super problematic now because there is not enough diversity in the cast. We're trying to salvage something beautiful out of an old wreck. Okay, that's the quote from J.D. Payne. The old, the old wreck being the Peter Jackson trilogy. The book itself and, I mean, I don't know. If true, I, I can't quite say exactly what he's referring to, but, but wow. the, the whole legendarium, let's say. I don't know. So that's, this that's has, number two. This has, to be, this has to be true, Bobby. I think this, I think this one's true. We shall yeah. see. All right. And here's number three. This is from the New York Post. It's, it's called Stranger Things Directors Were Not Loving When the Cast Hit Puberty. Stranger Things Directors Were Not Loving When the Cast Hit Puberty. And uh, if true, here is something from that article. Stranger Things star Noah Schnapp, who plays Will Byers, recalled the time a producer of, his Netflix, of the hit Netflix show approached him in an earlier season and asked if he could alter his voice to sound more like his seventh grade character. Um, he says, I remember one of the producers coming up to me and telling me, Noah, is there any way you could just speak in a higher tone and just slouch a little bit? Like, we need you to keep that season one innocence that you had. Okay. Mm. So that's number three, that apparently there was some, uh, some tension on the set of Stranger Things about kids growing up. All right, guys, okay. what do you think? That's also, that's also pretty believable. What, remind mm. me what number one was again. Number one was the, the thing about Meta and Twitter removing oh, of course, the yeah. pro-Western network of accounts. Uh, that, I, I mean, that to me just feels like a day in the life of, of Meta and Twitter, right? Like that's, right, Bobby? I mean, that's not I, I that, have to, I have to that's agree. That's not that outrageous. Yeah. Yeah. Um, oh, man, I, I thought number two had to be true because it was so outrageous. And I was like, surely Andrew would not invent someone saying that the, the old Lord of the Rings was a mess. But man, all of these are believable to me. This is actually this is this is the best the best selection you've come up with yet, Andrew. I'm I'm genuinely stumped, Bobby. What uh, I'm going to phone a friend here. What do you think? Yeah, you know, I number two is is sadly believable. Uh, but um, <laughs> I really I don't know, Andrew. If you're just going to go down like the kind of typical route of like you know, I looked at the 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 trailer and I didn't really find it to be very diverse, um, but uh, so I, I don't know. I'm, I'm struggling here, uh, but I'll go with I'll go with number three and say that's that's the one that's false. That's that's the fake one. The fake one. Yeah. Um, All right. I'm going to go. I'm going to go. I, I appreciate that, Bobby. I'm going to go with number two. I'm going to say number two is false. I, I, I wonder if there's like there's something there. Andrew's going to be like, no, it's false because the guy's name is J.F. Payne, not J.D. No, no, no. <laughs> I wouldn't do I wouldn't, no, I wouldn't I, try and stump you that hard. Um, I, uh, yeah, I mean, that, no, it's, the other two are just too believable for me. The, number two is also believable, but it's, uh, it's definitely outrageous. So uh, I'm going to go with number two is false. Okay. Well, it, it is number two, actually, is, <laughs> is the fake one. Um, but l let me explain, let me explain why. So here's, here's the real quote from J.D. Payne in this particular interview. Well, let, before I read the quote, let me say this. 
the reason that I thought this this interview was interesting and, and relevant is that even though in the prestige media, the mainstream media, and a lot of kind of the people who have been invited into like the the kind of the preview circle and stuff by Amazon yep. to kind of promote the show, including a lot of like big Lord of the Rings fan accounts and stuff like that, a lot of them are very positive yep. about the show. Um, and they're sort of touting, uh, you know, touting a lot of this kind of thing that I'm getting at in this quote that I made up about like the diversity and the recreation and, and all of that kind right, of thing. Right, right. But in many other areas of kind of the Lord of the Rings fandom, um, there's just just outrage and just all kinds of just up in arm stuff and and people just really not happy about what they think is going to be coming through in this show. So um, it seems to me that that Payne and others involved in the show are really now kind of panicking and really trying to put out fires in advance to to kind of, you know, get ahead of the story a little bit. So anyway, the real quote is is this. He says, I think we just want to continue to create a Middle Earth. There has been a long-standing tradition of wonderful artists who have got to make things in various media. You've got the Ralph Bakshi films, you've got Peter Jackson, you've got John Howe and their paintings, and Led Zeppelin's music. And these are really great artists. So we just consider ourselves under the Tolkien umbrella. I was excited to learn from all the greats who have come before us and hope to do justice to Tolkien. So in a way, if you kind of dig down into that quote, it's it's still kind of disturbing, right? I mean, it's still kind of like, you know, there's sort of all these different ways to kind of express Tolkien and, and all of that kind of thing, um, which is very much not the way Peter Jackson talked when he made the original movies. But Payne definitely isn't saying what I said. So you yeah. you were right, Zach, on that That's one. That's fair. I'm 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 slightly comforted, but not much. But what's the connection between Led Zeppelin and Tolkien? Why did he mention Led Zeppelin? I'm confused on that. Is he asserting that Zeppelin oh. somehow under the Tolkien umbrella? Oh well, yeah, hey, Bobby. Why don't you take this one? I know you're a big Led Zeppelin guy. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, tell me tell me more about this. Well, they I, I mean they were all um, lovers of of Lord of the Rings when they were children. I mean, okay. so they grew up with that, and you'll find that you'll find some you know. Um, references to the Lord of the Rings and, and the music, like Over the Hills Got and it. Far Away. Um, Ramble on. Shire, Ramble on. Go- yeah. Is that, am I wrong about Over over the Hill and Far, um, over the hills and far Away? Uh, I think, yeah, yeah, yeah. You're right Ram- about that. Ramble on, he does Misty Mountain Hop. I mean, Misty Mountain Hop, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, arguably um, Stairway to Heaven, you know, has, uh, it, you know, there's a feeling I get when I look to the West. Yeah. Uh, I mean, just all kinds of stuff that I think ah. is is not far off from a kind of Tolkien. I did not know this. Yeah. This is great. Oh, okay. yeah. yeah. And, you know, Jimmy uh, the, the, the Page. Ba- the, yeah. Jimmy the Page and Robert Plant, I think, are the main ones behind that. So what were you yeah. going to say, Andrew? Wow. I was just going to say Ramble On has almost hilarious Lord of the Rings lyrics. Um, <laughs> In the darkest depths of Mordor, I met a girl so oh, fair. Oh, wow. And then Gollum, and- the evil one, crept up and slipped away with her. So, I mean, it's just kind of ludicrous. It's, it, you know, that's, they just sort of use Lord bit, of the Rings. That's, yeah. that's on the nose for sure. Yeah. <laughs> not, mm-hmm. not subtlety is not, uh, not their specialty, I guess. Yeah. Well, you can tell how much of a Led Zeppelin fan I am. All of that is brand new uh, information to me, but that's interesting. Yeah. It sounds to me like J.D. Payne is saying, you know, and we've heard this in other areas of life. There is no, there is no true Lord of the Rings. It's a, it's a living, it's a living, right. breathing thing, right? That sort of evolves and, and we shape over time as we become part of the Lord of the, the Lord of the Rings Tolkien tapestry. So, um, will be interesting to see how, uh, yeah. how faithful or unfaithful they are. 
Yeah, maybe we'll talk about this on, on future episodes. But I mean, the, the amount of material that Payne had to work with is just kind of ridiculous anyway. I mean, he, you know, he basically has the appendices, um, you know, so I mean, it's just going to involve basically just creating, creating yeah. what he wanted to do anyway. So, yeah. All right. So sense. the other two are true. Um, yeah. So, the, you know, Meta and Twitter removed all this, all this stuff. Apparently only a small percentage of the accounts had even more than a thousand followers. Some of them had overt connections to the United States military. Um, mm. So, I mean, I, I don't really know what to make of it, except to say, you know, there's just all kinds of censorship. I don't know. I don't know what we call it, right? Yeah. Uh, of of what's going on on social media platforms. Yeah, it, um, it is super hard to know what to make of those stories when they come out. I mean, I think yeah. in general, I'm in favor of removing removing bots. I think that, you know, social networks are are bad enough populated by humans exclusively. They're even worse when they're populated by a bunch of non-human entities or, you know, bot farms. Uh, yeah. So I, I'm, I, I'm in favor of removing all bots. I don't think I'd, you know, want them to only remove certain bots that focus on certain messages. But to me, it's not necessarily outrageous unless there is some sort of like agenda-driven bot removal, which in which case uh, I think would be problematic. Yeah. And then the, the last one, the Stranger Things story is true. Apparently, you know, um, there were moments when the kids were growing up a little bit too fast for the storyline and they were, they were worried about that. I mean, I feel that as a, as someone who's never directed a single thing, uh, I can see how like you have a certain vibe in season one that just, it just works. Like there are these young kids running around having a great childhood in the eighties, you know, they got their, their, um, bicycle, their bicycle gang rolling around their Pennsylvania town or wherever they live, Indiana, Indiana. I guess, Hawkins, yeah. Indiana. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I mean, it's, it's a totally different vibe when those kids are clearly post pubescent, you know, it's, it's just a different feel. So I can, I can, I can, uh, sympathize with the director's frustrations, I think. All right. Well, that was a good mis misinformation segment. Bobby, what'd you think? That's good. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Number three there. I, I don't know what I was thinking. I clearly when they become teens, they don't get along. Uh, so I must've forgotten <laughs> yeah. my teenage years, but you know, Zach, you really threw me with that gummy bear thing, though. Um, I'm going to have to really <laughs> look hard to see if it's a former wind turbine on the next gummy bag I buy. Um, so exactly, I, I think I think fortunately we're we're years away from this because, as I understand it, this is a brand new technique developed by the good the good people in that state university in Lansing, Michigan. And uh, you know, I think this is aspirational mostly at this point, but. They're up there. They're up there chewing on gummy bears to prove that it's possible. So you know, don't you know? In, in a decade, look at your look at your gummy bear bags. And I must have confused the new Lord of the Rings with this new what Game of Thrones thing. I don't know. It's just to me. Oh yeah, How, is it's it like a, they is both it House have, of Dragons or whatever. Yeah, I don't know. I I've like one is just for like I don't know, kind of perverted adults or something. I don't know. My grandma watches Game of Thrones, so I don't know what she'll think of this new thing, but, um, I must've confused that. I mean, yeah, they don't have hobbits in the, in, in that bird, in the, in the game of Thrones <laughs> yeah. thing. So anyways, a little, right. a little more innocence in the Lord of the Rings. Right. W what's it called? Andrew? What, I, I'm not even paying attention. Lord of the, it's called, it's like rings of power. Yeah. It's right? called the power. Lord of the Rings, the rings of power. And it's set in the second age of middle earth. Okay. Uh, which is the period of the dominance of Numenor, the age of men who live on this island who sort in the island ends up sort of getting sunk like Atlantis. And so there's this whole kind of 
lore about that. And a lot of the- so this is pre-trilogy then? Pre-trilogy, is that right? yeah. And But some of the characters, especially some of the elves uh, and some of the other creatures that live a very, very long time were also alive during this second age, even though it's thousands of years before the trilogy, before the, th- the, the third age stuff. So like um, Galadriel, for example, is going to be one of the main characters. And there's a lot of controversy about the way that they're depicting her. We'll just have to see. I don't know. Okay. Interesting. Well, I, I don't think I will watch it, Andrew, so I'll just have to rely on your interpretation and review. Yeah, I think it'll be in the Catholic Herald eventually, so you can check it out. Okay, great. When that, when that cool. comes out. I look, I look forward to it. Speaking of uh, looking at things in journals, should we move on to our close read section? Let's do it. Cool. Well, uh, partly because, or maybe not even partly because, but it ended up being fitting that we chose today's topic, today's close read, because uh, Bobby has a, quite a background in education. And I think I'll have some interesting thoughts on this. The title is Why I Left Academia, parentheses, since you're wondering. And this is by a man named William Derejewitz. Uh You guys have probably read stuff by Derejewitz before, and apologies by mispronouncing his his last name. Um, I read uh, I read something by him that was, a, I think, a, like a commencement address at his school. Um, I read it probably two or three years ago and found it very compelling. It reminded me sort of of Newman's idea of a university. Because this guy's written a lot on what the purpose of university is. He spent um, about a decade at Yale, but in 2008, left Yale and in fact, left academia entirely. And so this piece in Colette Magazine, linked in the show notes, is about why he did that. Um, uh, Andrew, do you want to give a quick, quick summary of what this piece is saying? And then we'll dive in. Well, I mean, the long and the short of it is that this man... um, tells the story of his own kind of journey in academia um, that resulted in, um, uh, you know, graduating from a, a prestigious graduate degree program and looking around for his first academic job and getting a job at Yale University, which has this unique setup where you have a, a full 10 years to essentially like figure out whether you're going to get tenure there or move on to somewhere else. So he had this, this tenure career and he did not get tenure at Yale. And he did not get an academic job anywhere else that he applied. So when he's writing about why he left academia, he's upfront about the fact that he left because he had to leave. I mean, there weren't, there weren't any jobs. He basically was out of work, um, which I appreciated that it's not just like straight up, you know, straight up sour grapes here. I mean, he's sort of like right. putting his priors right on the table. Like he, he wanted to stay and he couldn't. Um, but then he uses his own experience to kind of uh, broaden the the argument a little bit to talk about the way in which universities are dominated by careerist uh, faculty members. Um, how you really, you know, how it, it's not really about the love of learning per se, or about the love of teaching, which is kind of old hat. We all know, you know, the whole right. sort of publisher parish thing, and we all know this. Um, but it does seem like this this um, emphasis on. Um, on just kind of playing playing the game of academia. Actually, Bobby and I earlier today were talking about th- this idea of like a kind of activist academic um, being sort of at the forefront nowadays. And so yeah. it's becoming more and more difficult for anyone, certainly for anyone with any kind of maybe right-wing political affiliations or, or ideological viewpoints that differ from kind of the, the mainstream orthodoxy on an American or, or you know, any university campus, I suppose, in the West these days. So not only would it be difficult for them, but even people who sort of keep their heads down and just kind of 
um, dig into the to the learning and to the teaching and that sort of thing itself, um, it becomes more or less impossible to stay in the system at least at the highest level. So I think those are the major the major points that um, uh, Dereshowitz makes here. Um, I don't know if I've missed any Zach that you think I ought to that you want to jump in and. Uh, no, I mean, maybe a good sort of a good sort of bridge uh, discussion point. I think that was a great summary and you hit on the high points. One of the things that struck me, uh, he was reading about or he was writing about this, this tendency of, um, of faculty to lead their students in a discussion of a text, for example. And he was saying, you know, the, the point in these discussions is not what it should be. It's, it's never to actually like sit in sort of humility and understand the text. It's not, you know, um, Leo Strauss had, had this, uh, a very influential influential idea of sort of uh, how to read how to read a text and it was really you know one that came from i think a a pretty clear place of um you know epistemic epistemic humility like what what was the author's intention here of this text and what can we sort of glean from it um but from a standpoint i think of humility uh you know in an effort to learn from the teachers the people who have taught who have written these things and gone before us um, and I was, I was, I was reading this paragraph of the Rejewitz where he's talking about this. I was thinking back to my experience in grad school and I was thinking, that's not what we did. We always interrogated the text. And then Dereshawit says in the very next sentence, like the, the goal is to interrogate now, which, which I hadn't really thought about explicitly as sort of a, a comparison point to sort of standing in humility and learning from, but I think interrogation is a pretty apt word despite being a bad one in this context, because when you interrogate a prisoner, for example, there's an adversarial, sometimes even pugilistic relationship, and you're you're playing a, a game of cat and mouse, perhaps. But you know they've done something wrong, and you're trying to figure out exactly what it was and what they know, right? So you can sort of you can either punish them or rehabilitate them. <laughs> and so that that's I thought the his 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 use of that word, while certainly consonant with my experience, was also very telling about what happens in a university education these days. The, the texts are interrogated, and as he says, I don't remember the exact the exact quote, but he's talking about how. The, the effort, instead of trying to learn from the text itself and from the author of the text, the effort then becomes to sort of deconstruct the text, uh, identify all of the text's priors, identify all of the text's biases, um, and then sort of perhaps reconstruct that reality uh, in the sort of in the right way, so to speak. Um, and that struck him, that struck, stood out to me and struck me as sort of maybe the most powerful searing indictment of the entire academic enterprise, because that to me under, undermines uh, and really sort of is the opposite of the entire purpose of education. Yeah, I have a few further thoughts, but I'd love to hear what Bobby has to say. I, I bet you have some some insights. Well, no, exactly, Zach. I mean, humility as kind of being at the heart of, of, of education is totally absent. Uh, and I just, you know, just kind of to bring up how many schools he actually applied to. It was yeah. 39 schools. He sent in 46 applications. He only had five interviews and two callbacks and zero offers. Um, and I mean, yeah, this guy is a stellar, um, I mean, not in the sense that some academics accept, but he's, he's, he's just a great writer, very insightful. But he it's there's one line here that he, he has that really stood out to me. Um, so he says he's talking about um, <clears throat> he was be behind his classmates, but he had a, a, a fatal handicap 
um, it meant that I entered the doctoral program without having been socialized into the profession to even the slightest degree. So his biggest problem was his idealism and the fact that he loved to read books. Um, so yeah, you said you, it's right under that. He, he talks about the interrogation and uh, ideological investments and everything kind of being political these days and the pro professorial game, the professional game. Um, and then also how, the, the professor's comment to the students in his pro seminar is really, really interesting. The professor said, the most important thing for a first year graduate student to do is to figure out where they stand ideologically. Um, yeah. yeah. First year graduate student, the most important thing <laughs> I know. is to identify your ideological positioning. That was amazing. Yes. And the one student claiming that he's a small M Marxist. Well, you know, insisting on that when the feminists are going after him because of Marxism yeah. having nothing to say about feminine, fe uh, feminist issues. I love issues. it. That was, that, was, that was just great. Yeah. That was schadenfreude when I was reading I that. Know, yeah. I know. And so anyways, I, I, I remember when I really, as an undergrad, had no idea really what I wanted to do with my life. Um, I just loved philosophy, but that seemed to be, uh, especially Plato, but that seemed to be a big problem. And I remember there was a professor that I had and he was, I mean, he was in his like upper seventies at the time. And I love the fact that he says his favorite professors were the ones that were over all over 50 years old. Cause I had a similar experience. They just came from like a different age. I did not, yes, I did absolutely. not like, I mean, there's a couple exceptions, but I did not like most of my younger professors. And like he said, they never made themselves available because they are always busy yep. in their research. Um, yep. And um, anyway, so this this really just resonated a lot with me. But I remember talking to a couple of grad students who eventually down the line had a really hard, they never finished the philosophy uh, PhD program. They never actually, I, st I think still to this day, one of, the, one of my close friends is not actually going to ever I don't think he ever got to, around to writing his thesis because uh, what he had a passion for, which was like moral philosophy, uh, they did not want him to write on that. He had to basically take the most, um, you know, trendy thing going on in the f philosophy circles of that day. And he, they, they told him, you won't get a job if you don't write on something about, about that. Yeah. And he just was like, this is soulless. And he couldn't bring himself to do it. Um, and then I remember talking to another professor when I was in grad school, um, and he told me, well, you know, cause I went to this school that was not going to get me like very far in academia at all. And I did that knowing uh, that already, but he said, the best you could probably do is teach at a small Catholic, I don't know, liberal arts college, like right. somewhere in Alabama. And or like Wyoming Catholic or something, or something like, that. like that. And I knew I talked yeah. to my wife from Poland. I'm like, well, that's never going to fly. Um, so <laughs> anyways, I gave up that. But yeah, this kind of thing that there, these professors are, the professionalization of this whole thing has like departed from the very telos of education and teaching. And so I just want to bring up one quick essay that was in First Things this morning. Um, and it's funny, I, I actually emailed this guy last night, and uh, his, his name is James Hankins, and there's an interview with him in the Wall Street Journal on, on Saturday. 
about his book, Virtue Politics. And it's basically a book mainly about education because of the humanist approach to changing politics was through a humanistic education. Um, but he's got a great um, like a little essay called Put Down the Woke Man's Burden. And this is actually uh, what we were talking about at lunch, Andrew, about how every week he gets an email from the administration talking about how they have to be scholar activists. And he's talking, he says that the, the thing that we forgot is the telos of this educational institution. Um, and so to me, it's just interesting how so many of my, the best professors I had were like steering me away from going any further <laughs> into this profession. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. You guys, I have, I have one confession that I have to make to you here. And uh, it's that I, I still love universities. I, I have to admit, I love universities. I, it, my wife thinks I'm sort of a hopeless institutionalist. Um, <laughs> but I, I have never felt more myself in my life than, than being on a university campus. I've had the incredible mm -hmm. privilege to study at three world-class universities. And, um, you know, granted it was a while ago, um, but all of my experiences were, were positive. And, um, you know, all of the institutions that I attended are certainly all very much in the, you know, full-blown, uh, you know, definitely in the same vein that, uh, that our author, author is worried about pretty here. Pretty far but gone, yeah. Pretty far gone, yeah. But, you know, it, it makes me sad because although I'm encouraged that there are, it does seem like there are new institutions sort of forming or, or being strengthened presently that are filling the need that uh, still some percentage of people in our population have to be truly formed by the tradition to actually sit in judgment of the tradition rather than sort of, you know, subject it to, um, right, right. to our judgment. Um, you know, places like Hillsdale College and the University of Dallas and, you know, places like that. They're wonderful. I'm so encouraged. Right. And I'm certainly going to be happy to push my kids in the direction of going to places like that. But I also just really, really would love to see even the slightest bit of turnaround in in kind of the older uh, university settings. And, you know, I have a friend who teaches at a public university in the southeast who, uh, you know, very woke kind of place for sure. Uh, but he just got tenure, uh, and he 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 is a lover of literature. A love, you know, he is he is one of the great kind of humanists I know. And he was able to kind of play the game well enough that he was able to get tenure. And so I think it is possible. And so you know, there's a little bit, just a little bit of what um, uh, Duresewicz or whatever is doing here that I think is kind of like, well, you know. It may maybe not every story is going to play out like that. Like there may be some people who there may be some rays of hope here or there. But I think on the whole, the essay is valuable because you know the big picture is he's he's right. I mean that, that this is the sort of thing that that is going to happen. But I, I can't give up completely on universities because um, I, I don't know. I just just uh, I, I just I don't know how to quit you, as someone once said in a movie. Yeah. Well, I, I think I think that's a healthy I think that's a healthy vantage point. And there are reasons for optimism. I think of the uh, what's it called? The Foundation for Excellence in Higher Education, I think um, the, the parent organization of the Witherspoon Institute at Princeton, the Zephyr Institute at Stanford, the Austin Institute in Austin, very close with the University of Texas. I think it's the Abigail Adams Institute in Boston, you know, near near Harvard and MIT and 
uh, like there, there are there are pockets. There are definitely enclaves um, of this sort of reimagination of the university, um, and certainly reasons for optimism. Um, to your point, though, Bobby, about sort of personal experience and how this jives with personal experience, um, I think back to my first year at the University of Oxford doing my graduate work. I had I had graduated from the Air Force Academy. I was a you know ambitious young Air Force officer. I had studied Arabic in undergrad. I'd studied political science, and I thought I'm going to be an intelligence officer, and I'm going to go in and uh, and and you know try to try to leave my mark on the world doing that. So, what makes sense to study, of course, is going to be international relations. I had no real background in the type of IR that I encountered at Oxford. You know, day one of class, we're talking about um, you know constructivist uh, versus realist versus neoliberal theories of international relations, and we're trying to uh, we're trying to problematize everything, right? And we're trying to interrogate every single text, um, and we're going in. You know, I don't remember it being said so explicitly, but we're clearly going in with some sort of um, ideological prior and a desire to, to to interrogate the text according to that and to problematize the issue. The whole reason being that you know the agenda now of international relations from that that vantage point is to solve a problem, right? And so, I, what I ended up doing was was writing my thesis on this sort of turn in the social sciences towards problem solving. Uh, and, you know, resolving to never have a world war happen again. So in the 1950s, you really see this turn towards the social sciences and a, and a, and a tendency to empiricize everything, if that's a word, I don't, but, uh, and then, you know, problematize everything and solve the problems with the social sciences. So, so then you have this very distinctive turn towards, um, towards ideological interrogation that is agenda driven towards solving a problem, um, rather than simply sort of knowledge for the good of knowledge itself. Um, but to you, to your point too, uh, uh, Bobby about, you know, how his professors and your professors were the, the best ones were the older experienced ones who sort of didn't, didn't buy into this completely my experience as well. I remember the, the young professors were just frankly quite boring. Cause we just, we sat through like research methods and research design classes with them and learned all about the latest and greatest ways to use R the, the statistical software and how to, how to, you know, make sure you have statistical significance in your small and large end studies. Um, and the older ones were the fun ones. I remember writing a, an essay once because I mean, Andrew, you know, from Oxford, like there's, there's so many essays and seminars, right? That's basically the entire experience. So I yep. wrote an essay once on the, um, the, uh, the Eastern campaign for the Russian army I mean, for the German army that ended in disaster in World War II, uh, because the Soviets were basically just able to throw, you know, tens of thousands of, of men at the Germans until the Germans folded. Um, and it was a really, it was a great essay. I learned a ton writing it, but then I go to talk to the professor about it and I, I climb this, you know, stairway upon stairway and aspire in, um, it might've been Maudlin college. I forget exactly which one it was, but you know, one of the spires of Oxford there and, uh, the professor, wonderful, wonderful teacher. He just loved teaching. And you just, you just sense that from him. He welcomes me into his office. It's a dark cavernous sort of place that looks exactly like you would imagine an esteemed, uh, Oxford Don would have. And, um, while we're sitting there talking, I'm in this, this giant sort of, uh, 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 this giant sort of armchair This also, you know, is twice as old as me, probably, um, he's sitting across the room from me and he, he immediately lights up a cigarette, you know, so far against every norm and, and rule in Oxford, definitely not allowed to, to light up a cigarette in your own office, but that was what this professor did. Cause that's what this professor had done for probably 50 years, you know? Um, and then we had a, we had a brilliant discussion and I learned a ton from him about, about the German army's Eastern campaign. Uh, the war on the Eastern Front, as it were, and and it was great. Those types of interactions were were wonderful, um, and so that's what I remember most. Uh, and I definitely remember detesting 
the other ones about the research methods and design, how to problematize everything. Wholeheartedly agree. I, uh, I love, I love the, the professors that take the liberty to smoke in front of you. Um, there <laughs> yeah. was, um, was it uh, Father Kavanaugh out at St. Louis University? And if you want, I remember I wanted him to kind of be my, my thesis advisor, help me understand some of John Paul II. And uh, he, he would invite me up to, you know, the top floor of the Jesuit Hall. And it would always be, he'd always have a cigarette on him. And we, we would just be looking out at the St. Louis skyline and he would just be, you know, just, just love taking it. a drag every now and then. But great guy. <laughs> you know, a final thought I have about, about this article is I wonder, there, there have been, I don't know if you guys have seen similar articles like this, but I have. I've seen, you know, there have been a number of these sort of, um, here's why I left academia or, you know, yep. and they kind of, some of them, they come from sort of different perspectives. Some of them are like very much about like a very specific, like kind of woke thing that happened. And some of them are sort of more complicated like this one. And, um, actually I have a friend in England who was, uh, doing very well in his academic career. And he, um, he decided just to bail out for n none of wow. these particular reasons. I mean, just mainly because it was just the life was just no fun anymore or something like that. Yeah. And, yeah. Um, so there's been a lot of this, a lot of this kind of thing, but I wonder if that's going to continue. I guess that's just kind of a, a question that I'm posing to myself. Like, will we continue to see this kind of like trickle of articles and kind of public distancings of people from academia? And will it continue to have a kind of effect on people, maybe even young people who are considering um, what to do with their lives or, or maybe if we're kind of, maybe we're kind of at the end of this and, and we're sort of just conceding like, okay, universities aren't what they used to be. It's a very particular kind of thing now. And, um, you know, everybody knows that. So if it's not for you, it's not for you. I don't know if you guys have thoughts yeah. on that, but I'm wondering. Well, what is this like for um, the other, yeah. I mean, outside of the humanities? Um, yeah, that's a good question. Very good question. Yeah. Yeah. My understanding is that I, you know, it's, it feels like maybe Zach, you know about this better than I do, but I, I, I sort of think it, it seems like I hear this kind of both ways from the scientific world or the STEM disciplines or something like that. I hear like on the one hand, a, a fairly strong voice that seems to say, yeah, look, you can, it, the work is a totally different kind of thing. And it's just not the same kind of problems that you face in the humanities. But then I hear every once in a while, these other stories that are like, no, no, it's infected that world too. And there's nowhere to hide. Um, I, I met this physicist at Vanderbilt when I was still living in, in Nashville who ran this little Catholic group. And he also wrote science fiction on the side. And he oh. was just like this sweet old guy, but an eminent physicist. I mean, a really, really great physicist. Wow. I actually, I don't know if I should say his name, but I don't know. Anyway, but, you know, I asked him about this and he was just totally nonchalant about it. He was just like, oh, never, never think about such a thing. Never, you know, wow. I mean, but he also just seemed like the kind of person who maybe like barely ever came out of his office. So yeah. I, I don't know exactly. I mean, what has your experience been like in that? Um, well, you probably the, the STEM side of things. Yeah. Or like people, you know, in that world. Yeah. Yeah. I think, so my, my understanding is, uh, that the STEM has this problem to maybe a lesser degree. I think it's sort of a less pronounced problem and probably not quite as advanced. Um, but I think the analogy I would make for universities in general is that the university of today is like the newspaper of 1990, maybe even maybe even 2000. 
And what I mean by that is they've they've ruled the roost for so long, but now there are these alternative media that are that are popping up that are able to supplant what they're doing in a in a decentralized, distributed, much lower cost fashion. But for so long, people didn't have an alternative to to newspapers. Uh, you know, you could ar- argue maybe broadcast TV, but but print newspaper really was was king for so long for for what it did and what it did really well. Um, and it's it's sad that newspaper has has gone the way of the dodo in you know to a large degree. And even the most esteemed newspapers now, the vast majority of the revenue is from you know online sales, and they have to really be competitive in online sales. And so because of that, they fall victim to the whole clickbaity thing and all of that. But I think the university is is going the same way. They've done something for so long that only they could do in a certain way for so long. But now, now people are realizing, wait, we can do this differently. We can build our own intentional communities. We can form alternative, alternative institutions like the, like Wyoming Catholic college, which does the university liberal arts thing really well, but it does it differently than really, uh, almost any other, um, liberal arts college that I know of. Um, or on the STEM side, I mean, there are, there are big figures like Peter Thiel and Elon Musk who now say, why would you go to college to take all the ridiculous core stuff when you could just focus really in a really specialized way? on the type of tech that you want to do. You know, if you want to do AI neural net programming, there's no reason for you to take an introductory English course, et cetera. Now I'm not, I'm not endorsing that view. Obviously I think introductory English courses are great, but the point is that even, even for STEM stuff, um, the the sort of uh, the gatekeeping function of the institution has lost a lot of power in part because of the dot-com boom and the success of Silicon Valley and the success of people who never went to college or never graduated college, like Mark Zuckerberg, for example, uh, really, you know, running away with success there and, and encouraging people actively. Hey, if you have an idea and you're 18 years old, 19 years old, and you want to be the best in the world at doing something, don't go to college, just do that thing and become the best in the world at it. And that's your competitive advantage, et cetera. So I, I do think that um, you know, th- that there are, there, there are good and bad things about that, right? On the one hand, I do think higher education has become a complete racket. It's become essentially a monopoly, much like the newspaper industry. I think it does need to be disrupted, but not necessarily in the way that sort of the Silicon Valley Titans talk about it. It needs to be disrupted in the sense that we need to get back to the essentials of what a university is and do those things at a level, uh, in different institutions in a different way than they have been done in, in recent history. So to your point earlier, Andrew, about like, we, you know, whether, whether goes the university, uh, I think that, I think that the, the answer is there will be alternative institutions that pop up and some, some universities, some institutions may be saved, but I think for the most part, it's going to be new institutions. It's going to be, like you said, the universities of Dallas and Wyoming Catholic colleges and, you know, Hillsdale's of the world. Yeah. I mean, it'll um, be interesting to, to, to balance that, well. that with the fact that, I mean, like, Harvard's not going anywhere. It's endow they, its endowment will never run out, right? I mean, so I mean, there are these yep. places that are like they will be there. It's just a question of what—what yep. what are they going to be? Um, it, it's intriguing. Yeah, I mean, I think now, even now, they're—they're they're, they're diploma mills. You know, yeah. uh, you—you, you, I, I have zero confidence that anyone leaving Harvard has anything approaching a good education, right? They they may have some basic level of, especially if they're a STEM degree, I think they may have some sort of basic level of competence in applying their specific craft. I don't have any confidence they know how to sort of apply their craft in the context of a well-rounded education. Um, but, you know, if you if you study computer science at MIT, you're probably going to come out knowing how to code something. You could, you've probably coded a couple applications and things like that. But but that, you know, that an education does not make. And so even now, I think they are just diploma mills. I think you're right, though, Andrew, like th- these these giant endowments are not going away. I saw I saw the other day that the University of Texas now has a larger endowment uh, than that of Harvard simply because of the rise in, in oil and energy prices. And a lot wow. of them are they're, they're vested largely in those. So, yeah, these institutions are not going away. They're sticking around. So it is interesting to think about what that will look like. But, um, you know, they, at a certain point, people realize I can't spend $80,000 every year to go to Notre Dame. Right. 
and expect that I'll be better off for it because you simply will not be. Right. Right. Well, any any final thoughts before we move on? That's probably that probably should be where we uh, wrap this up for today. All right. Cool. Let's go to the final section. This is recommendations. Bobby, I know you're joining us as a guest. Did you happen to bring a recommendation to the table today? You mean like a, an article and book? Yeah. Okay, yeah. Um, Any, anything. Yeah, you know, I, I encourage people to take a look at the work of James Hankins. Um, just in general, his book, Virtue Politics. If anybody uh, has Hoopla, uh, you can actually get the audio book on there. Um, and so I'm listening to that right now. And just learning about the Italian humanist approach to education is is really uh, refreshing and bringing a lot of things together for me. Uh, so I encourage you to take a look at that. And also some of his articles, um, like Wall Street Journal just had an interview with him, which I thought was pretty good. Um, and then he also has some stuff in first things like today's piece, put down the woke man's burden. Um, and then also some of his stuff encouraging the classical school movement, because I think actually if you're going to reform um, a lot of the kind of higher education too, it has to, there has to be a reformation at the same time, K through 12 uh, programs. And I think class, a lot of these classical schools are actually giving that liberal arts approach uh, to the students so that they, they may not you know, uh, want to, they, they may actually force a change within those great institutions like Harvard and Princeton. Um, because even places like UD, which has a great, uh, you know, undergrad program, um, they're going to these grad programs like at Harvard. And I think they're making a difference there as well. So um, check out the work of James Hankins. Will do. Thanks for the recommendation. Andrew, what do you got? Okay, Zach. I'll try to be brief, but I have two. Last week, okay. we discussed uh, Joan of Arc, as you recall, and uh, we were discussing the uh, the issue of uh, production of a play about Joan of Arc in which she would be using, she would be using uh, they, them pronouns and sort of, com- you know, complicating Joan's, uh, you know, gender, gender uh, identity. Well, as it happens, I needed needed for work for writing projects to watch two different movies about Joan of Arc uh, this week, uh, which I have done. Uh, the first of which is the classic 1928 film, The Passion of Joan of Arc by Carl Theodore well, Dreyer. I've seen it. Love it. Yeah. I'm glad that you've seen it and that you love it. It is a silent film and you would think it might be kind of like kind of one of those that you like you're supposed to like but maybe it's actually super boring. It's not, it's, it's incredible. It's an hour and yeah. 20 minutes long, but it is riveting. I mean, the, the, the way that Dreyer shoots, um, uh, what's her name? Uh, Renee uh, Fal- Falchetti. I'm now, yep. I'm now blanking on the actress's name, but I mean, it's an iconic performance of just these close-ups of her face. And when she has her head shaved and, and all this stuff, it's based on the proceedings of her actual trial at, at Rouen um, when she was condemned. And um, it's just it's just wonderful. It is it is a beautiful piece of of cinema from the early days of cinema, and um, it it definitely does deal with uh, issues that are pertinent to today. I mean, like one of the issues raised yeah. at Joan's trial, this is real, was um, whether she would stop wearing men's clothing. You know, and she says in her trial, she says in this in this film that she will go back to wearing women's clothes when her mission is done. Right. 
So yeah. she like identifies the clothes as part of the mission, as part of this sort of like military, this weird, you know, out of the blue military calling that she has been that she has been called to. So anyway, I recommend The Passion of Joan of Arc. It's terrific. Another one, much more recent, that I've also watched this past week is from 2017. It's called Jeannette. It's a French movie uh, by mm. Bruno Dumont, who is a, a kind of a controversial filmmaker, an atheist filmmaker, but also all of his movies have to do with religious things, faith things, Catholic things. And this is a movie about the little girl, Joan of Arc, Jeannette, in her hometown. And it is a musical of all things. And it's this little girl. It's it's almost like it reminds me of like watching my daughter. I mean, it it's like this girl who just like kind of makes up these songs about the stuff that she's thinking about and feeling. And what she's thinking about and feeling is seeing Saint Michael and um, encountering these nuns and talking about what God is asking her to do with her life. It is a yeah. really weird movie, but it is a really good movie. Again, like wow. brought up to the present day. You know, again, I'm not against like thinking through old stories with kind of modern lenses on, um, you know, just because I don't want just, just certain modern lenses you reject. Yeah. I just think, you know, let's be careful with the pronouns <laughs> or whatever, but right. Um, <laughs> but anyway, I recommend this if you're into kind of like uh, art yeah. house cinema, Jeanette, uh, Jeanette by, uh, by Bruno Dumont. Great. That sounds good. Uh, I'm, this, this might be cheating. My recommendation this week is uh, a work by the great St. John, uh, Henry Newman. Um, and it is called the idea of a university, uh, but very relevant to our discussion of the, the Jesuits article, what a university should be, what a university education should provide to its young people. So I recommend, uh, that essay. He's, uh, I, I find his writing, I mean, even though he's, uh, he's, he's a typical Englishman. So he writes in a rather flowery prose and, and not quite as, um, as efficient as a German would write. Um, he's still a very clear writer, I think. And I've always enjoyed, uh, his work. So check out the idea of university by, uh, John Henry Newman. And I think that's it for me. All right, guys, anything else before we wrap? That's it. Great. Well, thank you so much to our listeners for tuning in to another episode of What a Week. Sorry, we ran a little bit long today. I guess adding a, a third person to the mix makes us a little more talkative. But Bobby, great to have you. Thanks for answering the answering the invitation and hopping on with us. Really appreciated uh, your contributions today and, uh, and had a fun time. Thanks for having me. All right. So our listeners, as always, thank you. If you have any comments for us, just send us a note, Zach at credopodcast.com or Zach and Andrew at credopodcast.com. I think Andrew, I'll probably just change it. I'll probably just give you an Andrew at credopodcast.com. And then there's, there's two emails for, you know, one for each of us, probably a little bit easier, but there it is. Zach and Andrew at credopodcast.com for now. And until next time, God bless you. 